Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, bringing you the news to know for the week of May 19th. It's been a busy week. I'm sure you all have been quite busy as well. I still have not made it out of my home office. I continue to work uh, remotely. Hope you all are staying safe as well. So I've got five, maybe six stories we'll get to today, and let's get to it. The first article comes out of the Washington Post, and here's the title. It's thermal scanners are the latest technology being deployed to detect the coronavirus, but they don't really work. And this one came out May 11th by Drew Harwell. I'll read you a few lines. As I scrambled last month to find a way to pinpoint infections from the novel coronavirus, officials in Georgia's Ginwit County sought help from an unusual source, an Illinois-based seller of red light traffic cameras. Red Speed USA had begun advertising a, quote, fever detector that described as fast and accurate using groundbreaking technology to identify symptoms of illness. There's another leader in the industry here, F-L-I-R, I think that's FLIR or FLIR, and they make infrared cameras mostly for the military, uh, for border patrol and for being able to find objects at night. And what they say is, hey, this stuff really isn't for coronavirus. And here's some of the lines from, from their story. While the systems can sense elevated skin temperatures, they aren't precise enough to tell whether someone has a fever or something else. The warmth of a person's skin is often quite different from their core body heat. People with heavier builds, health conditions, or hot flashes can trigger the system's alarms. And so too can anyone just walking in from a hot car or parking lot. Many people with COVID-19 infections haven't actually had fevers. The head of the CDC said last month as many as 25% of infected people don't show any symptoms at all. And here's a quote. We do have concerns that we're seeing a lot of folks popping into the marketplace making claims that, frankly, the science can't support, he said. Uh, He said being someone from FLIR. You can't just take any thermal camera and point it at someone and get an effective screening tool for their surface temperature without tremendous amounts of false alarms. There are a lot of folks have popped up overnight and we think these are marketing solutions that don't do what they are intended to do. So I chose this article for two reasons. One is I thought it was just good to know about the thermal detection systems that are out there. It sounds too good to be true, probably is. Using a thermometer is still the best way of measuring temperature that I know of. But the second reason I like is because like so many things in the COVID era here, we're in a rush to find solutions. So when a vendor comes knocking, we just jump at it. And I recently interviewed Dr. David Butler, who's a very experienced CMIO. And I asked him, what does he do when he's evaluating a vendor? And some of the main points that I got from him is that he looks for one with a solid track record, one that has established a long-term relationship and is invested in your success looking for a vendor that isn't just trying to sell you solutions to problems that you don't have. 
They're really focused on knowing you, knowing your system, and then providing a solution if they have it and saying that they don't have it if they don't and not trying to bend their solution to work for you. Good vendors will know when they can add value and know when they can't. So be careful out there. There's a lot of emails hitting your in baskets right now selling you the latest things. Uh, get your email filters revved up. Next article comes out of the New York Times. And I'm going to do a couple here on telehealth. This is the first one, a pandemic benefit, the expansion of telehealth. And by Jane Brody, May 11th. Few lines from the story. Even if no other good for healthcare emerges from the coronavirus crisis, one development, the incorporation of telemedicine into routine medical care, promises to be transformative. Using technology that already exists and devices that most people have in their homes, medical practice over the internet can result in faster diagnosis and treatments, increase the efficacy, efficiency of care, and reduce patient stress. This, uh, this person did a telehealth visit and here she says, during a recent telemedicine visit, while I sat at my home computer, the doctor diagnosed a likely rotator cuff injury by having me move my painful right arm into different positions. Although an MRI is likely needed to confirm my exact problem. Now I'll just pause here for a minute because I can see the potential where telehealth drives up the imaging studies and because we can't feel the joint, we can't hear the murmur, so I'll just order an echo. I don't have any data to support this. It's just a gut feeling and something that we should watch. Another line or two. Even in areas where people lack good broadband connections, local telemedicine internet cafes could be established that enable patients to connect to appropriate specialists, perhaps a thousand miles away. So let's talk about this use case. This has not worked in the past. And that was pre-COVID. I think it was CVS that tried to pair up with MD Live and they had kiosks in their stores and the volume was just minimal. It really didn't work. But keep in mind, they were targeting minor coughs and colds. This was really an urgent care model that they were trying to do virtually. And so perhaps scheduled visits at kiosks can bring chronic disease management to a patient population that doesn't have access to care. There are plenty of people out there. I know in, in this particular article, they say most people have this equipment in their home. That's a certain demographic that does. There's definitely a section of the community that does not have broadband access, that does not have a tablet or a smartphone. And so maybe this is a way of getting a kiosk into their church, into their pharmacy, into their supermarket, and then not having to go out and buy cell phone plans for your entire community. Perhaps you can get the portions of the community to come to special locations and get chronic disease management. We're looking at this right now. We're in a, I'm in a rural community. I'm in a rural community where broadband and cellular are not always available and smartphones are not a guarantee. And we are seeing that a lot of our video visits fail because of patient side difficulties usually a lack of technology, not just only under, misunderstanding the technology. Read one more uh, paragraph here from the story. Remote patient monitoring options will offer reliable insights into issues that matter most to patients, will empower clinicians in delivering tailor-made counseling to patients via teleconferencing. 
In studies of patients infected with the liver damaging hepatitis C virus, for example, the responses to treatment derived via video teleconferencing have been as good or better than among patients receiving in-person treatment, researchers studying the chronic liver disease have reported. Sure, hepatitis C, great use case, love it. That really is prime for telehealth. There's not a whole lot you need to touch on that liver to treat chronic hep C that's not advanced to cirrhosis or advanced cirrhosis. But let's talk about telehealth in general for a minute, because most of us now are either in the second or third phases of the telehealth journey. The phase one being the let's respond to that immediate threat, work with what we have, scale it up if possible, and learn really freaking fast. Phase two is more of that stabilization phase where, okay, let's make sure we get onto a HIPAA compliant platform, start to measure results, how many visits are we doing, how many are phone calls versus video visits versus in-person, and we're starting to educate our patients. Hey, this telehealth thing isn't going away. We need you to get on this virtual service. Let's, let's work together and solve some of your connection problems. By now, your staff are really good level one tech support agents. I don't know if you had planned on that crash course, but they've gotten it. Now, phase three is really about exploring the, the potentials. There are tons of good use cases coming forward, and you have to sort through them as CMIOs. We're going to be getting these, and you have to prioritize and say which ones make the most sense, and then see, do we have the infrastructure in place? Or do you have to invest more in your infrastructure to make this happen? One of the things that I'm cautious about, there's a bunch of grants out there that you can go and get uh, from the FCC, and you may be able to invest in this infrastructure but a lot of these things have recurring costs. There are subscription models, there's licensing fees, and you may be setting yourself up for six or seven figure payments to sustain for years, decades to come. So although there's some free money hanging around, think, think about what you really need right now as opposed to what's just a Christmas wish list that you're going for. Um, I think one of the things to consider is whether that phase two strategy that you adopted, just getting the telehealth up and stable, is that going to be your long-term strategy? Will that offer the patient and provider the experience that you want? I know that I'm going through this now with my health system where, hey, we put something in place, but we really want uh, the epic integrated experience. And so now it's a matter of developing that use case and finding the right vendor and all the contracting and legal things that happen, security things that will happen. It's a long process, but now we have time. So I feel good about going through the process now. Uh, as we've all seen by now, there's going to be a segment that just will not have success with video visits. Either their internet's not strong enough or they're lacking the tablet or smartphone. So as we settle down now, we need to think about how are we going to get telehealth to that segment of the population? Otherwise, they're going to get further behind, which is going to lead me into the next article. This one comes out of Healthcare IT News by Nathan Eddy, May 14th. Telehealth use rises, but new trends highlight demographic divides. Just 36% of people making less than $25,000 a year say they have access to telehealth, according to a new study. But this percentage increases as income rises. 
So this was a study by Black Book and Sage Growth Partners, and they surveyed 591 U.S. healthcare consumers. And they found that uh, stress and social isolation are still fueling demand for remote behavioral and mental health services. That's not surprising. But here's some of the income data that they found. More than half, 55% of people making 50,000 to 100,000 and 70% of those earning 100,000 to 200,000 and 70% of those with an income of more than 200,000 have access to telehealth. This kind of feels right to me. I don't know exactly those numbers, but sure, those who are earning six figures and higher are more likely to have a smartphone with a data plan or in-home Wi-Fi, broadband internet access, a laptop, desktops with cameras, I think this feels about right. One of, there's a quote from the article here. A one-size-fits-all approach for telehealth will disappoint. Virtual care alone won't wash away all the ills of insurance coverage and social determinants of health and health and data literacy problems. And that is certainly true. So I think as leaders in our healthcare systems, we have to help support those who really can't support themselves. There's people out there who desperately need help. As CMIOs, I feel we have an ethical responsibility to help look out for those who cannot get access to this technology on their own, see what we can do. Perhaps some of these funding programs can be useful for putting in some infrastructure, perhaps broadband, perhaps Wi-Fi into a community and dramatically change the trajectory of their healthcare. Next one comes out of Becker's Healthcare, touches on telehealth, but I like the whole gist of the article here. IT intelligence must go up. How St. Joe's Health CIO Linda Reed plans to tackle organizational inertia and push new tech from Jackie Drees, May 15th. The COVID-19 pandemic has helped push forward telemedicine initiatives and clinician engagement with new technologies, which Linda Reed, Vice President and CIO of St. Joseph Health, plans to continue building upon post-pandemic. And here's a quote from her. I think one of the takeaways from the pandemic is to continue to push harder on new technologies and not let some of that organizational pushback stop you. Let's stop there for a minute and just digest that. Really interesting perspective and uh, and you may very well hear a different side of the story so generally i like it when operations is pulling it not when it has to push operations i find it just flows better if there's an operational leader that wants the technology and we serve up great solutions that makes their job easier if it's that you found this really great whiz-bang toy and you're trying to get operations to accept it, that's, uh, that can be a harder sell. However, I can see her point. There are certainly times where we know it's the right technology. Operations feeling overwhelmed. They're focusing on the crisis of the minute. It might be staffing. It might be making sure that they have enough masks and gowns all valid things. They might not be looking out six months to a year about what technology they're going to need to deliver superior patient care. And 
that has to be a delicate dance. And I encourage you to sit down and maintain that contact with your operational leaders so that so you just maintain that relationship and understand where the pressures are, when they're ready to be pushed harder in operations and when is not the right time. So interesting perspective. There was another uh, line in here, again from uh, Ms. Reed. When we started looking at some of our more elderly patients, we noticed factors like they had flip phones instead of smartphones, and they don't know how to get onto the internet. We brainstormed some of these observations and came up with a few ideas to troubleshoot. The first is old-fashioned mailings, so just sending step-by-step -step telemedicine guides to patients in the mail. Once things get back to normal and it's safe to do so, we may also try having small group sessions on site or in the community to talk to patients about virtual care, how they work, and the equipment needed to participate. We will see a bunch of low-tech innovation come out about how to get patients onto higher tech telehealth platforms. And one of the things we're considering in, in my organization is when patients are coming in for whatever the reason is that we have them pull out their smartphone and we work with them to download the apps that we need them to have to do telehealth visits in the future. We are working on the scripting of how to help our front desk staff when they're setting up appointments to help make sure that a telehealth video visit will go better than if it's just done three minutes before the visit starts. These kinds of things, and I love what she's considering here about the mailings and the small group sessions, great ideas. And if you've got others, please let me know. I'm interested. All right, this next article, it's out of Moby Health News and Laura Lovett, May 15th. Banner Health taps LifeLink to implement new waiting room chatbot. The new tech is designed to help curb face-to-face -face interactions during the coronavirus pandemic. For patients at Banner Health, the waiting room experience just got a lot more digital thanks to a partnership with LifeLink. The pair are now working on deploying a conversational mobile chatbot to help with intake forms and remote check-ins for both in-person and telehealth visits. The bots will be able to give patients tech advice when they're using telemedicine. When used at physical locations, the chatbots will be able to tell patients when to go directly into the exam room. The traditional pre-visit process of walking to an office, filling out paper forms, reading instructions, and then waiting for an exam room has to change. And that's a quote from Jeff Johnson, Vice President Digital Business at Banner Health. LifeLink chatbots have already helped hundreds of thousands of Banner patients navigate emergency room visits, so the concept of digitizing regular doctor appointment visits with a mobile virtual waiting room chatbot assistant was a natural extension of the technology. I love it. I think chatbots are something we really need to consider. This is a way of automating a lot of the mundane, routine things that have to be done during an office visit or intake into the hospital. And if it can be done through a conversational AI, patients are more likely to adopt it. Now I understand we have patient portals where patients can go in and fill in their medications and your adoption's probably pretty miserable because the interfaces aren't great and the patients have some difficulty. But if you've got a really good conversational AI, Patients are getting more comfortable with that. That's what Siri is. That's what Alexa is. Will it be for 100% of our patient population? No.
but I encourage you to explore this. I think there's value here that's untapped and will continue to grow over the next 18 months. I'll do one more article. This one comes out of class, KLAS, and this is a report from them looking at EMR offerings, particularly in AI adoption. And so they went and looked at, all right, which EMR vendors are offering integrated artificial intelligence? And actually not a whole lot are, to be honest with you, not in really a deep way of doing it. So Epic was the only one that had more than 100 customers and its overall performance was rated as pretty good. The up and coming is Cerner. They're getting into this, but most are in pilot phases. I think they're a little behind, but they are now coming up in their, their new partnership with Amazon Web Services should certainly give them the firepower to get this done. So with Epic, I'll just read you uh, two lines here. So Epic's cognitive computing platform is chosen for a number of reasons. It enables Epic EMR customers to access AI cap capabilities without having to engage another vendor. Some customers do also partner with other AI vendors for tools or models that Epic doesn't offer or for projects that use non-Epic data. Although a few customers pull in non-Epic data, those that do report it being a heavy lift on their part and recommend in-house analytics expertise. The next reason is if Epic data is used, the machine learning models are fairly easy to deploy and integrate into workflows. Customers must still solve the operational part of the equation themselves, but the platform minimizes the amount of technical work needed. The workflow integration aids in clinician adoption and is one of the platform's biggest advantages. Epic customers use AI models most heavily in clinical areas, with readmission and sepsis prediction being the most frequently reported use cases. The operational use cases mostly involve bed planning and no-show prediction. So from my experience with Epic and Fall, just a little bit short here, is that they will help you install the model, but then they're kind of hands off. The health system really has to have its operational playbook ready to go ahead of time. Otherwise, you bought a nice algorithm, it's going to sit on the virtual shelf. As CMIOs, we have an important role to play in this. We need to make sure the end users have a good understanding of the model so that they trust it, that they have a good operational plan to act on the results that they see, and that they're going to stick with this over time. You can't just drop it on the first false positive or false negative that happens. There isn't a model out there that has perfect sensitivity and specificity. It's always going to be a trade-off. And having, again, this is one of those areas where I would insist there being an operational leader being at the front of the spear here. This is not something where you want IT saying, we've got great technology and here, catch. That's a recipe for failure in my opinion. I think I'll wrap it up there for today. I hope you all have a good week. That's our show. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.